You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. If I've never met you, by the way, my name is Norm, and we're in a, a summer series, summer sermon series uh, that we began a, a couple of Sundays ago that has us going through various passages uh, within the Bible that are going to be addressing different aspects and examples of prayer. Last week, if you remember, uh, and if you were around, we walked through that whole event in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 on the life of Jehoshaphat, specifically in this time when he's getting attacked by three warring factions coming against him. Today we're in Habakkuk chapter 3, so uh, we won't get there for a little bit, but it gives you a few minutes to find Habakkuk. Um, it's the fifth to the last book of, of the Old Testament, and so if you can find, if you can find Malachi... You can find uh, Habakkuk if you hang a left from there. Um, the desire for this series, as I've said, and I, I'll repeat myself again today, is it's a prayer series, but our goal in this series is not to have you simply pray more, although that's not a bad thing, obviously. But it's really more than that, in that we want this to be a summer and thereafter where you pursue Jesus, draw close to Jesus, come to Jesus more passionately, uh, intimately in prayer. Um, because too often we see prayer as a duty, right? An obligation. Uh, oftentimes we hear of people in the church feeling guilty because they don't pray enough. I don't want to hammer you and take you to a place of guilt. And I also don't want you to see prayer, like I said, as an obligation, a thing that you just check off on the to-do list in your spiritual walk. But instead, instead, I want you to see prayer as an opportunity and as an invitation, because that's what it is. It's an invitation to come with boldness and humility into the presence of of, of God, uh, to move from the sacrifice that took place outside of the Holy of Holies, but to break through that veil that is Christ that has been separated, torn in two, and draw close to the King who is on his throne of grace. That's what prayer is, in part. That's what prayer is. And so with that in mind, I invite you to turn to, like I said, Habakkuk. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of chapter three. So the three verses that end the book... But because we are dropping in on a book like this, I have to provide at least a little bit of background, a little bit of context. First of all, who is Habakkuk? Well, he was a prophet. Uh, he was a prophet of Israel, specifically to Judah. If you remember from last week, Israel has split into two. We have Israel, the nation, 10 tribes to the north. We have Judah, Judah and Benjamin, the nation to the Self. What were prophets? Well, prophets were people who were raised up by God to speak to the people of what God had told them to say. Um, that's a prophet. Uh, the Old Testament records 17 books that are named after various prophets, five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Habakkuk is a minor prophet, minor in that his book is shorter, not Minor and less, that meaning that it's less in importance, but just shorter. So five major, 12 minor. 
He's a part of that second group. In this book, we drop into a time when Judah was being governed by wicked kings. So we're post-Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, if you remember from last week, was a good king. But we now are in an age of wicked kings and the people have followed their lead. And as a result, there was treacherous uh, economics taking place. There is drunken leadership. There was slave labor. There was environmental abuse. And there was rampant idolatry. All of that is recorded in chapter 2 of Habakkuk. And so Judah was a mess. And evil uh, thrived as as the people rebelled, which eventually led to an overthrow of the nation by Babylon. But we're not there yet. We're right in the middle of the mass, but that is coming. In fact, as we go forward, we're going to get strong hints and affirmations of the coming overthrow of Babylon. But adding gasoline to all of this mess that's taking place in Judah was that God was silent and he was seemingly inactive. He was seemingly indifferent. And this was driving Habakkuk nuts. Because remember, Habakkuk is a prophet. God speaks to the prophet. Prophet speaks to the people, but God was silent. And like I said, this was driving Habakkuk nuts. But this leads to something very unique about this book. You see, most prophets, those 17 books of prophets, record God's word to the people through the prophet and the people's reaction to what they say. Now, that's an oversimplification, but generally that's what a book of the prophets does. But what this book does, which is very unique in it, is that it records a back and forth between God and Habakkuk. where an amazing metamorphosis takes place in Habakkuk in just three short chapters. It begins in chapter one with Habakkuk complaining. He's protesting to God that he seemed to be standing by, doing nothing, saying nothing, while his people in Judah carried out widespread wickedness and injustice. You can read about that in verses two to four of chapter one. Uh, To put it another way, to 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 Habakkuk, God seemed deaf. He seemed blind. He seemed indifferent to what was going on. You ever felt like that? You ever felt like God was deaf and blind? Maybe not literally. Like you would never say that. But practically, the Bible says in a number of places that God cares for us. You ever felt like he didn't? That that he was ignoring your situation or perhaps the plight of the world in general? If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. Many have, including Habakkuk. God responds to his complaint by saying that things Habakkuk aren't unnoticed. And to Habakkuk's shock, he had already set things in motion. 
to respond to Habakkuk's prayer. It was a preemptive answer to prayer. In fact, it started decades earlier. And what God says is he is, was raising up the Chaldeans to punish Judah. Take a look at verse 6 of chapter 1. You can read it behind me on the screen if you want. But we read there, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Uh, that's a nice way of saying that they were cruel and they were violent. Who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. In other words, predatory warfare. That's what they were about. They weren't going to war because they were defending themselves. They weren't going to war because there was a great evil that they needed to subdue. They were going to war because they wanted what wasn't theirs. So that's what God is saying. Who are the Chaldeans? Well, the Chaldeans were a people group within the nation of Babylonia. Uh, Sort of like saying, I'm from Vancouver, but then getting specific and saying, you're from Kitsilano. You could say both. I'm from Kitsilano, I'm from Vancouver. It means the same thing. The Chaldeans were this brutal group of uh, Babylonia and their empire. And with this response, God reveals several things about himself. One, he sees, he's not blind, he cares. He cares about what's going on. He, he answers, he works, and he responds. That, that comes right away. That's what we learn about the God of the Bible in response to what's taking place here. But what he also reveals is that he does things that cause us to be stretched. And occasionally answers our prayers in ways we might not expect. I mean, it's not on the screen, but if you look at verse 5, God says exactly that. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk now responds. We have this back and forth. He responds to God by protesting again to the seeming injustice of punishing a wicked people. That's Judah with a people even more wicked. Uh, You can, again, read on the screen behind me what is said in verse 13 of chapter 1. Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the the man more righteous than he? In other words, what Habakkuk is saying to God after getting his response is, let me get this straight. Yes, there's wickedness going on in Judah, but you're going to bring your arm of justice down by using the Chaldeans who are more wicked than us? Not only are you ignoring their injustice and their evil and their wickedness, along with ignoring ours, but you're going to use them to bring punishment on us? Doesn't make sense. It's sort of like if you're a parent and you got a kid off the rails. Hands up if you got a kid off. No, don't hands up if you got a kid off the rails. You got a kid off the rails and you go to God. God, don't you see what's going on? They never listen. They disobey. They're in my grill all the time. Don't you see? Don't you care? And God responds and says, actually, I do see. I do care. And this is what I'm doing. There's a felon in jail. I'm going to spring him early. And I'm going to bring him here and he's going to level justice on your kid. You'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. God wasn't looking at that, man. How can, you, how can you spring someone from jail who's a felon to bring punishment on my child? That's this. 
doesn't make sense, God. Habakkuk, almost treading on arrogance, seems to assume that God won't be able to answer this unanswerable question. Saying that in verse 1, that he'll just stand, watch, and wait for an answer. You ever felt like that? You ever felt that you, you knew better than God? That you had considered something that he dismissed? You know what I mean? Got him in a corner. God, that can't be. You wouldn't do this. I'll stand, I'll stand and wait for a response. But you know what? I doubt you have one. Now, again, we may not say that out loud that we do that. But we do every time we ignore his word. When we ignore his word, belligerently ignore his word, we say, I know better than you. I, I know a way that you haven't considered. Things are different now. And so we're going to choose this. We do this, even if we wouldn't say we're ignoring the word, we do this when we sort of reimagine God and reshape his word to make it more fit in our culture and our world. I know better than you. I'll just stand here and wait for an answer. That's what Habakkuk is doing as we end chapter one. That's we often do. But God, surprise, surprise, does have an answer. And Habakkuk is floored. His answer is, I will punish the Chaldeans in due time. And I will bring destruction on the home of Babylon. But before that, I'm going to use them, as I've said, as an arm of my justice on Judah. God ends by saying in verse 20 of chapter 2, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And in saying that, what he is saying to Habakkuk is, that, that includes you too, Habakkuk. Enough talking. The, de the defense has rested. Keep silent. Yes, God invites our laments, our complaints, our questions, but there does come a point in time where God says, I've answered, rest now in me. Be silent before me. Habakkuk marvels at the plans of God and he says in the verse right before our text in verse 16, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. What isn't said there, but is inferred there is, I also know that they're going to be used first on us. But, but I'm going to wait here quietly because I also know that you're going to bring justice on them too. But he does have one ask. One ask that shows up in verse 2 of chapter 3. When he says there, for the people of Judah, in wrath, remember mercy. 
And if you know the story of Judah and Israel, and we do because we've read the book, studied the book of Nehemiah, he does. For after the Babylonian kingdom does destroy Israel, destroy the temple, bring down the walls, there is a return. God remembers his promise. We don't like the word wrath, I know. Wrath, as it's connected to God, is actually a word that we all live out and we all have a passion for. Wrath is just manifested righteousness. Wrath is that emotion you feel when you watch TV and you go, that's not right. Something should be done. That's wrath. Not how we define it in our world, but that's godly wrath. That's God's justice. That's God's righteousness. Looking at a nation and saying, that's not right. So if you've ever had an emotion that said, I've got to change this. I've got to speak into it. Things need to be corrected. That's wrath. It's justice. It's part of our Imago day. God is a God of justice, and so are his, his creatures, humanity, men and women. All of this leads to our passage and what one author calls the most beautiful spirit of submission found anywhere in Scripture. Um, now, you may argue with that. I would argue with that because I think the submission of Jesus in the garden is probably more beautiful than this. However, you get the point, right? That what we have, what we're going to see in these three verses is a beautiful picture of submission to God and God's word to Habakkuk. And I would add on top of that, of all the great passages in the Bible, it is one of the greatest testimonies of faith found in it. And I say that because it's a faith demonstrated in spite of his circumstances having not changed. In fact, his circumstances are going to go from where they are now, bad, to worse before they get any better. And in spite of the world around him with its injustice and this predatory warfare remaining the same... It's a faith that comes in spite of God's righteous people like Habakkuk and a remnant with him remaining in a time of mourning. But we're still going to see great faith displayed. And so with the time I, I have uh, remaining, I'd like to go through our three verses one at a time. Beginning with verse 17, which records Judah's, what I'm calling Judah's imminent calamity. Let me read verse 17. We read, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Uh, this verse, and you may have picked it up on your own, it lists Six events taking place uh, that go from bad to worse. And it all springboards out of the word though. Verse begins with though. The question is, are these events listed here mere possibilities or do they take place? Uh, people have asked that question. My view is they're imminent and they do take place. In light of what's coming, Habakkuk is saying, this is what they can expect. This is what his people can expect. And history demonstrates that it in fact did. As one theologian and 
historian writes, Habakkuk's demonstrated faith eventually was tested and refined by the genuine fires of life. The uh, six events that I talk about that are listed here in verse 17 are laid out in, in ways, like I said, that go from bad to worse. With the loss of figs, which the verse begins with ranking least, and the loss of herd in the stalls being the worst and causing the greatest economic da- damage. Figs serve as a delicacy in Israel. But their loss did not produce severe hardship. I don't know if you like figs. I don't know if that would be hard on you. Fig Newtons. We all like Fig Newtons. Uh, that would be, that'd be hard. That would be the worst. Uh, I like a good Fig Newton. So figs. Grapes. This fruit of the vine. Grapes provided their daily drink. Um, it would be inconvenient to lose the fruit of the vine, the grapes. But... It's not a hardship. They just have to deal with things and maybe drink something else like water. The olive crop, however, produced oil for cooking and lighting. That hurts. Grain provided the primary diet of the region. So the failure of the fields to produce food would mean starvation for large segments of the population. And both sheep and cattle, those that make up the flock that is referred here uh, to here and the herd, it made up much of the wealth of the region. Sheep and goats provided wool and occasional meat for the people of Judah. The Jewish people, however, did not diet normally and eat cattle, but they were used for preparing the soil and planting other Uh, other crops and and doing the heavy work. They were beasts of burden. Now, the loss of any one of these by themselves could be handled. Some were worse than others if they lost them, but it could be handled. But grouped together would mean economic disaster and a devastating loss of life and hope. Daily provisions lost. Economic strength lost. Health lost. Family members lost. And the Lord's blessing and favor as a consequence of of their sin lost. This is not only horrible, it's horrifying. That's verse 17. But look at how verse 18 begins. Yet, (laughs) this long run-on sentence, which begins in verse 17 with these six though tragedies, continues in verse 18 with yet, followed by two statements that stand against verse 17. It's like verse 18 is fighting verse 17. It's standing against verse 17 with defiant contrast. Look at verse 18, short verse. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I would argue that this word yet is the most awe-inspiring word in the whole book. Like there's a lot there, right? 
I mean, if verse 17 encompasses this imminent calamity, then verse 18 encompasses what I would call faith-filled defiance. Faith is fighting against verse 17. Faith is fighting in the midst of verse 17. Faith understands why verse 17 is there. But it also understands what is necessary to deal with verse 17. Faith-filled defiance. Let my nation, what Habakkuk is saying, let my nation and my people face the worst of national disasters. Economically, humanitarian disasters, spiritual disasters, relational disasters with God himself, and me with them. I'm going to go through this. Yet, I will remain faithful to the God of my salvation. And rejoice in him. How? Don't you want to know how? Like, how do you go from though to yet? How do we go from though to yet? Well, we'll end our time by answering that question. And how I'm going to do that is I'm going to laser in on some things that were true about God in Habakkuk's life. Things that need to be true in ours if we're ever going to go from though to yet. The first, the first thing true about God in Habakkuk's life was that God was known. Habakkuk knew God. But not like I know where you know Tiger Woods or Wayne Gretzky or whoever. He, he didn't know simply God here. He knew God intimately, relationally, in his heart. Like I know my wife. That's how he knew God. God wasn't a mere theological construct to Habakkuk. God wasn't a set of doctrines. As long as we have these doctrines, right? Check off. We're good. God wasn't whittled down to a mere set of doctrines. God was a person in that he was personal. He was personal to Habakkuk and he knew him. Are theological tenets and doctrine important? Of great importance. But they're greatly important because they describe the one we worship. The one we have a relationship with. We don't worship doctrine. We don't worship theology. Again, vital. If you know me, you know how important that is. But because they bring us to God. They describe the person we have a relationship with. Jesus in John 5 speaks to this. In John 5... He's got a back and forth against his opponents, with his opponents, the religious of the day. And he says um, in a, a very famous text, a very well-known text, at least to some of us, he says to them, you know, you, you search the scriptures. You search the script. That's a good thing, right? We're searching the scriptures this morning. You search the scriptures, but you say that you think, I should say, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Those scriptures that you search and seek and spend time in are to take you to me. They, they push you to me. Too, too many of us have a relationship with theology. 
and doctrine. And I can talk all night about theology and doctrine. I love it. I love it. Golf and the Bible. I love it. My wife and golf, got to be careful, and the Bible. <laughs> and my kids and my in-laws. All right. <laughs> but that love is supposed to lead us to Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. We're to go to Jesus. We're to know him. Not just about him. I fear the day at the end of the day when we say, well, Jesus, I knew doctrine. I knew theology. I was adamant about it. And he was, I never knew you though. That's why I'm so passionate in this summertime that we don't just simply check off another 10 minutes in prayer and go to the rest of our lives, but we walk intimately in prayer because it's taken us to Jesus. Was theology important? Doctrine important to Habakkuk? Absolutely. His complaint in chapter 1 comes because he knew God to be just and faithful. That's what was driving him crazy. He was jealous for God. He was saying, God, they're doing this. You're not doing anything. That's not right because you're just and faithful. So what's going on? So his complaint led to that because he knew of God being just and faithful. But here's the thing. His trust in chapter 3 comes because Habakkuk knew God to be just and faithful. He knew God. He knew what, was God, what God was like. Habakkuk's, though to yet then, begins by not just knowing God, but knowing God personally, deeply, and richly. And I would also add, what was true about God in Habakkuk's life was that God was enough. He didn't just know God and only be God and something else. He knew God, and if that was just it, God alone, that was enough. Habakkuk demonstrates the kind of relationship with God where he enjoyed God for himself. More than the things God could do or give. His love, his faith didn't depend on the things going on around him. He, he put God above the fight, you know what I mean? Like he knew what they were entering. And instead of looking at the fight, he put his eyes on God. He put God on top, ahead of the fight, rejoicing in him regardless of the circumstances that were coming. This is Habakkuk's Job moment. Do you remember what Job said in the aftermath of his calamity in, in Job chapter 1? We'll put it on the screen just to remind you. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing a song based on that verse. Easy to sing, really easy to sing. Because it's great. Tough to live out. Unless God is enough. This, in our chapter, in this, in this text, in chapter 3, verse 18, is Habakkuk's Job moment. Because Job is essentially saying what Habakkuk does here. 19th century. 
British pastor and theologian, J.C. Ryle. Um, He writes this. It's on the screen. It's a longer quote, but it's tasty. He writes, How little fit for heaven are many who talk of going to heaven when they die. While they manifestly have no saving faith and no real acquaintance with Christ, you give Christ no honor here. You have no communion with him. You do not love him. Alas, what could you do in heaven? It would be no place for you. His joys would be no joy for you. Its happiness would be a happiness into which you could not enter. Its employments, in other words, the things you do there would be a weariness, not a joy, and burden to your heart. Oh, repent. And change before it's too late. What's the application for us before we look at the last thing to point out about what was true in Habakkuk's life about God? Well, I I don't even know where to begin. It's so practical. I mean, in a world like ours that that, that we are a part of that sees, sees the world around us in merely economic terms and most of all in economic terms, with many in the church equating God's blessing with ease and comfort and health? Is that not true? Don't we see things today mostly in economic terms? And aren't there people, there's whole, doc, whole ministries based on the blessing of God coming, manifesting itself in ease and comfort and health? I think that's true. And if that is true, we need to consider the depth of Habakkuk's faith. That's the application. Though the worst things in life happen, we need a faith that depends on the God of the universe and worships and treasures him for him alone. Which leads to the most basic and obvious question that this text begs to ask, and that is, Midtown, is God enough? Is God enough if your fig tree doesn't blossom? And there's no fruit on your vines? No olive oil being produced? The fields bearing no fruit, food, and the flock and the herd being cut off and taken? Is he still enough? Is he enough for you? Is he enough for me? What if the Chaldeans come to, come to Canada? What, what if the Chaldeans come to your, to your life, your family? What if they come? Habakkuk's final words in verse 19 underscore all of this, and it shows us a third thing true of God in Habakkuk's life and how he could go from though to yet, and that, and that was God was his And he was God's. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread 
on my high places. As Eugene Peterson puts it, because the Lord is my strength, I run like a deer and I'm the king of the mountain. Verse 19 contains the only place in the Bible outside of the book of Psalms where the phrase Yahweh Adonai is used. When Habakkuk addresses God the Lord, Yahweh Adonai, only place outside of the Psalms where God is addressed in this way. And it's not an accident because these two names of God, first, Yahweh God, the I am of the I am, talks about, refers to God being a covenant-keeping God. It speaks to the great assurance of his promises. It's the name of God given to Moses before he goes in to set the people free from Egypt. That's Yahweh, with Adonai being a very personal name of God. Lord, Master, speaks of the personal and relational, um, intimate relationship that we have with God. It, It speaks of his dedication. It speaks of commitment. Yahweh, Adonai, God, the Lord. This is Habakkuk saying, the God who is all-powerful, the God who is self-existent, the God who is self-sufficient, that covenant-keeping God is my Lord. <coughs> my Lord. I have a relationship with him. With so many reasons to give up, pack it in, and blame God, Habakkuk emphasizes God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to his promises and faithfulness to his people. And all because God was known, God was enough, and God was his. As we begin wrapping up, (coughs) I want you to notice how the book ends. Put your eyes very bottom of the of the page it ends with an instruction to the choir master you see that to the choir master with stringed instruments this too right here outside of the psalms is the only place in the bible to give a direction to a choir master right here great instruction do you see the instruction get the sitars out man right <laughs> Get the mandolins out, bass guitars, and sing my prayerful psalm. It's great. Lay down some beats, right? Give it some rhymes and sing it out loud and sing it out loud because when we sing, it gets into us, doesn't it? So sing it because I want it to go in you. Here's the beautiful thing about this instruction. A book book that began with protest ends with praise. Last week, if you were here, you remember that fear was replaced with rest, with Jehoshaphat. Here, protest is replaced with praise, with Habakkuk. Imminent calamity, verse 17. Faith-filled 
Defiance, verse 18. Protest to praise, verse 19. And so as I close and we respond, so will we. We're going to praise. A time where we sing of the justice and the faithfulness of God. A time where we are called to bring our needs to him, like last week, great needs to a great God and allow that great God and his promises to shape our prayers. So bring our great needs to him. A time too, because we get freedom here with this Holy Spirit inspired complaint in in, uh, chapter one, where we are invited to bring our anxiousness, bring our laments, bring our cries of how long you seem silent but with a readiness to go through a metamorphosis like Habakkuk did. And don't be surprised if God answers your prayers in unexpected ways and faith-stretching ways. It's also a time when we respond where we remember Jesus, our Jehovah, Adonai. It's through the death of Jesus that we enter a new covenant, a covenant-keeping God enabling us to have a relationship with him as our Lord. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.